So let's stand together and let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we're beginning a study through the book of Acts verse by verse. There's so much there that we want to learn from, and I'm very excited about this study of going through verse by verse. I'm hoping that you are as well. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. That's a good place to start. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, he asked, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it is our privilege to turn to it, to glean and to learn all that you have written in it, Lord. We pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We pray that he would convict us where we need to be convicted, that he would comfort us where we need to be comforted, that he would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, Lord. We pray that you would accomplish every purpose that you have for each one of us, Lord, in this room. We thank you, Lord, that we have the wonderful honor of being able to turn to your eternal word, Lord, that will outlive the heavens and the earth, Lord, that you exalt above your own name, Lord, and to be able to build our lives upon it, Lord. So I know that you're going to honor it, and Lord, I just pray that you'd set this time aside for your holy use, Lord, and we pray that it would be sanctified for your purposes. Thank you for the privilege of the, being able to gather as the body of Christ publicly and to study your word and to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Acts is one of my favorite books. It seems that every time I start a new book to read in the Bible... I always say to somebody that that's one of my favorite books because every time you read the Bible, every time you read a verse or you read a passage or you read uh, a certain section of Scripture, your heart becomes arrested with reverence and, and adoration and honor and respect and, and all the things that, the, that God's Word does to our hearts. And the book of Acts is one of those books for me. I, it's so exciting. It's vibrant. It's, it's action-packed. I remember the first time I read the book of Acts, I was sitting in my living room where I was living at the time, and I just read and read and read and read until my eyes were burning because I was reading so many hours and I was starting to realize that I was getting hungry because I hadn't eaten in so long. And usually I don't miss those opportunities. And, and so I, I was just reading and just devouring it and devouring it, and I, and I just started seeing all the different wonderful things that the, that the Holy Spirit began to do through the disciples. And it just blessed me. And so I'm excited about the study of going through verse by verse. But the book of Acts is also full of exhortation, maybe not by 
in, in word only, but in deed. You see the disciples doing things and, and, and acting in such a way where the Holy Spirit can grab that and apply that to our hearts and bring conviction, and he does. It's always healthy for us to, to see people pay a tremendous cost in Scripture in order to stay faithful to God. And faithful to God is by God's definition, not our definition. And faithful to God is important. And under difficult circumstances, like we see the early church uh, finding themselves in, they were faithful to God by the Holy Spirit. So it's a great lesson for us and exhortation. Our lives in ministry should always represent sacrifice. Biblically, it's hard to find lives who were faithful to God that didn't sacrifice. They, they always paid a price. Jesus told us it would be this way in John 16:33. Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So Jesus told us it would be hard. He told us it would be difficult. He told us it would be a struggle. And concurrently with having and experiencing tribulation in this world, he also calls us to reach it, which is very, very difficult when, as you're going through difficult times to be thinking about others. Usually we have our focus on ourselves. But how do we do that? What is it that's lacking? Well, we're lacking, what we're lacking is, I believe, the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, power to be witnesses to him, and that's what we see the disciples receive. That's the make or break difference between what they were before they were endued with power and what they were subsequent to receiving that power. Before we get into these verses, I want to give you a little background, an introduction to the book of Acts, maybe a little bit more than a little introduction, but it's needed background and, and context to help us understand the foundation upon which all the rest of the book is, is built. The author is Luke, and Luke was a Gentile. And to our knowledge, most of us have learned that he's probably the only Gentile to pen Scripture, at least in the New Testament. And we're told that he was a physician in other places. We know that he was the author because of two categories of evidence. The first is internal evidence. We're told throughout the book that there's four main passages we call the we passages. I went to Ireland a few months ago, and they say we all the time. Let's have a we time of prayer. They mean a little time of prayer. W-E-E. But these are W-E passages, we passages, where he, he transitioned from saying he and they, and he, trans, he, he transitioned from those personal pronouns to we. So, so Luke is joining in on the action. He's getting in on the action, and he's writing it down. So we know internally that he's the author. But also we have external evidence. The church what most people call church fathers, I like to call them church leaders, um, testified of the same thing. You have um, Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, Eusebius, and Jerome all unanimously said that Luke was the author because they were close to the time that it was written and it had been passed down to them. So they all in concert agree with the fact that Luke was the author. And Luke was an incredibly accurate author an incredibly accurate historian and writer. He shows familiarity with Roman law that is unparalleled of any New Testament writer and the privileges of, of Roman citizens. You remember when Paul appealed to Caesar and he knew all of those customs and all of those rules related to Roman government. He gives the correct titles for various government rulers. Examples of that would be he uses titles like consul and tetrarch and proconsul and others. He also accurately describes roughly 80 geographical locations. When's the last time that you ever sat down and wrote down 80 geographical locations, spelled them right, and were correct in where you placed them? 
It's very, very difficult to do that. As he also named over a hundred people by name. And he, and he spelled their name correctly. He had the, the right names together. Everything was just exactly how it was, it was and how it occurred. This accuracy was so compelling that a 19th century British archaeologist named Sir William Ramsey, some of you may have heard of him, he actually was a skeptic and didn't believe that Acts was accurate. He went to, to Israel to disprove Luke's account, and he actually became a Christian as a result. We've heard that happen a few times. So he, was, he verified Luke's accuracy with all the places. and all. I mean, there's so many places where Luke could have been uh, wrong, and he could have got it wrong, and he didn't. Also, Luke gives us a lot of space to speeches and sermons. Twenty-four sermons or speeches are, are given in the book of Acts out of 28 chapters. That's a lot. Lastly, Luke uses over 700 Greek words that are only found in Luke and in Acts that are not found in the rest of the New Testament. And actually, nine-tenths of these 700 words are found in the Septuagint. And that is, if you don't know, the, 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 Hebrew, the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek that was, that was done between the 3rd and 1st centuries B.C., so Luke was very, very familiar with the Septuagint. Now the name of the book, commonly, maybe in your Bible, it may say the Acts of the Apostles. I don't really think that's a, a, too good of a title, and I'll tell you why. Luke really only highlights two apostles in the whole book, Peter and, and Paul. There's no mention of, of Mary, Peter, Paul, and Mary. It was just Peter and Paul. Mary's in there, but he's, you know, he's highlighting Peter and Paul. And Peter is... is spoken about chapters 1 through 12 and then Paul chapters 12 or 13 rather through 28. So he's really focusing in on two apostles although he does mention the other apostles and they are fruitful and God does amazing work through them but it, it, to say it's the acts of the apostles is really unfair because he's really focusing on two apostles. But also it's not fair and, and not a good title I believe because of the fact that 24 like I said 24 speeches and sermons are mentioned. So Luke's interested by the Holy Spirit on the content of these speeches and the truths found in these speeches, not just on the physical acts and miracles done through the apostles. Luke probably didn't even give this book a title in the first place. He meant Luke and Acts to be a two-volume set. Any of you own a book where it's two volumes? Usually, if it's more than one volume, it's eight, ten, twelve volumes. Uh, but two-volume set go together. And some people refer to Acts as Luke 2. And, and the Gospel of Luke as Luke 1, because they were meant to go together. Another reason why probably didn't have a title is all the disagreement in the Greek manuscripts. When you look at a Greek manuscript, not that I'm a Greek scholar, but when you look at a Greek manuscript, usually they're all in agreement with the title of the book. You look at Romans, they all pretty much say Romans. First Corinthians, they all say Corinthians or Second Corinthians. But with Acts, there's so much variation between the two. It probably was the Acts of the Apostles and, and other examples were added later. So it probably didn't have a title in the first place. But there are variants like some manuscripts are called Acts, some are called the Acts, some Acts of Apostles, some Acts of the Apostles, even Acts of the Holy Apostles. Now we know that's wrong because uh, the apostles were anything but holy before they came to know the Lord. And they would never, even if, if you were to ask any of them in the time of the book of Acts, should we call this book, when we chronicle what you're doing right now, Acts of the Holy Apostles, they probably would say, by no means, as Paul might say. By no means, don't call me a holy apostle. So that's somebody else bringing it uh, to the title of, this, of these manuscripts. So probably didn't have a title in the beginning, in my humble opinion. Very, very humble, very lowly. My humble opinion, I say that the title should be The Continued Acts of Jesus 
through the apostles by the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't fit really well on a page, but that's exactly what it really is. It's Jesus, as we'll see, continued acts, but it, now it's through the apostles, but it's not by their own strength and their own power. It's by the Holy Spirit's power and not by their leading, but by the Holy Spirit's leading. Now, the date of the book of Acts, probably around 62 A.D. during Paul's first imprisonment on his first missionary journey. Some erroneously have dated Acts really late. Originally, they even said second century, but after that, that was kind of um, disputed and, and refuted. So they, they took a date between 70 and 85 A.D. 85 A.D. is the, the traditional time when they believe Luke was, um, was martyred. And, but there's a problem with that theory, and, and the reason why there's a problem with it is because of the things that Acts leaves out. Acts leaves out Paul being released from his first imprisonment, and then the book comes to kind of an abrupt end. It also leaves out the martyrdom of James, the brother of, of our Lord. Uh, in 62 AD, this occurred, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian. And, and it wasn't that, that Luke was disinterested with, with when people gave their lives for Christ, because he did, does mention... James, the brother of John's martyrdom and Stephen's martyrdom, he found both of those noteworthy. So why not one of the leaders of Jerusalem, if not the leader of, of the church in Jerusalem? Also, there's no mention of, of the persecution by Nero, which ultimately culminated with Paul being beheaded. There's no mention of Paul's other missionary journeys or his death, like I mentioned. No mention of the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Surely, with, with Luke being as precise as he is in recording these things, surely he would have he would have given at least one of these things that have been left out, but he didn't. So the book of Acts was before AD 70, before AD 60, uh, 64 AD, probably around 62 AD. Now the significance of the books of, book of Acts is pretty vast. It's pretty huge significance on this book. Without it, we would be clueless about many things in the epistles. So God put this in the Bible by the Holy Spirit for, the purpose, for many purposes. There's a, there's, a, there's a huge significance to it. But we would, one of which is, would be we would read the, the epistles and go, who is this Apostle Paul? Where did he come from? Did he just come into town one day and said, hey, I'm the Apostle Paul? No, we, we find out what happened uh, to Saul of Tarsus, how he became the Apostle Paul. There's many things that we would be completely in the dark about if we didn't have the book of Acts. Also, it provides more than a quarter of the New Testament. Did you know that? A quarter of the New Testament, 25% of the New Testament, is the book of Acts. That's quite a large portion there. Also, it spans roughly the first 30 years of the early church. Now, that's good for us to know for a few reasons, but one of them is that sometimes we condemn ourselves that we're not you know, raising people from the dead on Monday and, and casting out demons on Tuesday. And, you know, why can't we get back to the book of Acts where there's miracles every single day? The, he highlights over 30 years of the early church. So he's not saying these things happen every single day. There were, quote unquote, normal days in the early church where they, they weren't raising people from the dead. They weren't healing people. They, they, they just walk with the Lord and obey the Lord's calling on their lives. And so that's going to be encouragement to us. There's plenty of exhortations, so the encouragement will take them. Acts also teaches us quite a bit about the Holy Spirit, as you probably already know. The Holy Spirit is mentioned 59 times in the book of Acts. And this was kind of a progressive revelation for the disciples. They had heard about the Holy Spirit even growing up in synagogue, and it's, he's mentioned in the Old Testament. But just to, to know and to learn just how much he would become a part of their lives was something new to them, because Jesus 
had set it up that way. And so they kind of slowly learned about just how close they would become to the Holy Spirit. Acts also provides the solution to reaching our world. They were, they were powerless to change their world, just as we are, apart from the Lord. But later in the book of Acts, we're told they were accused of turning the world upside down. And we know it was right side up, that God turned it right side up. But they were accused of turning the world upside down. Today, the church at large is just as powerless as the early church was to reach their world. But now look how God set it up. Look how God set up the beginning of his church, and he did it purposely. He had these guys, these disciples. Now, he prayed all night before he chose them, just so we would know that he didn't make a mistake. He chose these disciples, you know, the ones that, that uh, fought to, to who would be the greatest and who wanted to call fire down from heaven on the Samaritans and who, who just about made every mistake you could possibly make. They, they made those mistakes. But he chose those disciples, the ones with no formal training, the ones that didn't have an excellent pedigree, just men called by God, just women called by God who had simply been with Jesus. And he did this so that when he prepared them and filled them with the Spirit, who would get the glory? God would get the glory. Just like with Gideon, he lowered his numbers down of his army down to 300. Why? Because he didn't have more people that could fight? No, because he wanted to make sure that when, when he won the victory that it, was, it would be God that would get all the glory. And so he took these guys and he took insignificant number. They had insignificant backgrounds and training and an insignificant number. If I were to start the church with some disciples, I'd start with 5,000 maybe. That's a good number to start with. He starts with 12, and one of them was a true believer. But he does this so he can show that I can do all things through these men as long as they submit their lives to me and, and receive the power that I want to give them. So that's what we get to see in the book of Acts. The plan was, there was no plan. They were just trying to survive one day to the next. They were just trying to be led by God in a very difficult, difficult time. They didn't think of things ahead of time and had all these great plans, a five-year plan and a 10-year plan and a 15-year plan, and they had their plans and then asked God to just bless it. No, they were, they were desperately saying, God, lead us. We don't know what we're doing Hopefully you see that here. We don't know what we're doing, but we've been called by God here to, to, to do a work, but we don't have it all together. We don't have a great plan here. We're, we're just going by the seat of our pants in the spirit, so to speak. But, but, but God is leading and God is blessing because when he does a work here, who's going to get the glory? It's not going to be any leadership. It's not going to be anybody else. It's going to be the Lord. And people are going to say, God visited that place and he did a work and he added to the church daily. That's what we're praying for anyway. So the plan was there was no plan. Today, sadly, much of the church does not look like the book of Acts. And it's easy for any of us to beat up on the church. And I don't want to do that this morning. Because the church is, is, is the bride. And Jesus is working through his church. He's building his church. The church is doing a lot of great things. So I want to balance that. But sadly, less and less, we see a supernatural leading and empowering of his church. Just a business model sometimes. Or just clever and crafty marketing strategies. It works for the world. Let's, we, we should do it in the church automatically without even thinking about it. This all done with the mantra, it works. But it works. It works. And this is a man-made path paved with human ingenuity stepping stones leading to compromise and a man-centered focus. A million miles away from God's true heart, agenda, and plan. And how easy it is for any of us to have a passion for self, 
We read these, these books, these Christian books, that have, it's all about us, and it's, the focus is on ourselves. And, and it's hard to, to combine that with Jesus saying, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How do, how do those things go together? Where did we lose our way? Where did, what happened? How come now we're so focused on ourselves primarily and what, what's about our lives instead of the kingdom and giving our lives away for his purposes? It reminds me of the church of Laodicea. Jesus' commentary on their self-assessment was this. He said, Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus' assessment of them was 100% contrary to what their assessment was of themselves. They were just like this church of Sardis. It was, a, it was a study in activity. Anyone would have looked at the church of Sardis, they would have said, wow, look what's going on there. Surely God is working in their midst. But that wasn't Jesus' assessment of the church of Sardis. So it, it's, a, it's a healthy, sobering reminder to us that God doesn't just look on our activity and our self-assessment to judge whether or not we are walking in his plan for our lives. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, if the Holy Spirit were to withdraw himself from the church today, 95% of what we do would continue and nobody would know the difference. But if the Holy Spirit were to withdraw himself from the early church, 95% of what they were doing would come to a screeching halt and everyone would know the difference. Wow. That's a quote. And I don't know if 95% is an accurate number or not, but the we, do, we all see the problem, though. We all see that you could take Jesus out of certain situations that are supposed to be Christian, and they would keep on going as if nothing ever changed. Sadly, uh, we are going more and more this direction because we're leaving the Word of God. We're leaving Acts 2.42 as the ministry model for the church. And the early church didn't have all the things that we have today. They didn't have radios and PA systems, television. They didn't have the Internet, CDs, DVDs. Crusades, magazines, newspapers, telephones, no planes, trains, or automobiles, cars, bikes, skateboards. They did have boats. They did have boats, but they, but they did have all these other things that you would think if God were to start the church, he would start them in a day and age where they would have the, the, that kind of advantage, where they could use technology. I'm a technology guy. I love gadgets. A lot of men are like that. I can't get enough of gadgets. And we think that gadgets somehow help our lives related to the kingdom of God. But God said, no, I want these to have insignificant number of men and, and with those kind of backgrounds to be in that time period with, not, with no help in terms of technology and they'll be just fine. And they'll, they will start something that will continue for millennia. But the one thing they had was the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. God have, could have provided anything to them, but what he did give them was what they needed, and it shouts to us what we need. If they needed it, then we, then we need it as well. So let's dig into this, this book of Acts, this great book here. Notice in verses 1 through 3, Luke gives this recipient, Theophilus, an introduction to his book. Verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the, the kingdom of God. So Luke reminds this Theophilus of his former account. What is his former account? It was the Gospel of Luke. 
The Gospel of Luke begins this way, verses 1 through 4. Insomuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. How come people don't call me most excellent? That's a bummer. That you should know the certainty of those things in which you are instructed. So Luke here, he gives three things characteristics about the Gospel of Luke which are relevant to our study in Acts. Because if, if, if Acts is designed to be the sequel, so to speak, of, of Luke, and it's supposed to be a two-volume set, then the things that are true of Luke can be confidently believed that are true for the book of Acts. So he wanted to write an orderly account, and he wrote it to provide certainty of the things in which Theophilus had been instructed. And he also addresses Theophilus as most excellent which probably meant he was someone in a high place of, of, of Roman government. There are some theories about Theophilus' relationship. That's hard to say, Theophilus'. Theophilus' relationship with Luke. Uh, there is some speculation. Some believe that, that Paul, or excuse me, Luke rather, was Theophilus' slave. And, and Theoph or Luke was a physician. And oftentimes uh, physicians were slaves. And Maybe you might hope that you had a slave that was a physician. Your health care wouldn't be cost so much. I don't know. But no, just kidding. We don't believe in slavery here. But, but you know, the, the issue is that, that, uh, that Luke could have been his slave, but he also could have been just someone that Luke respected and had a relationship with and wanted to keep him updated on what was going on. Maybe he was sharing his faith with him. We know in Acts chapter 1 that he doesn't, uh, he doesn't address him as, as um, uh, most excellent. He drops that. So some people say because of that, Theophilus became a Christian in between the time he received Luke and the time he, re he received Acts. We don't know. He still has the O in there, O Theophilus in Acts. But uh, there's all kinds of speculation. Some believe that Theophilus was actually a Roman, a Roman um, um, leader that actually commissioned Luke to chronicle everything that Paul did in defense of Paul for his trial that was to come. So there's all kinds of theories, but the point is, Theophilus means lover of God, and so that could have been because of his conversion to Christ. It could have been from before. We don't know, but he's writing to him this orderly account, which is good, because as, we see, as we'll see in Acts, it's very orderly. Notice also in verse 1, he tells Theophilus that his former treatise dealt with what Jesus began to do and teach. If the Gospel of Luke was what Jesus began to do and teach, then Acts is what Jesus continues to do and teach, all the way till today. Jesus was continuing his ministry, but now through the disciples, by the leading and powering of the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus, when he had his public ministry, and when he was, when he was ministering on this earth, he was limited to a locality. He couldn't be everywhere at once. Now, by the Holy Spirit, Jesus now could minister to more people than he ever could, and this by his own design. Jesus said that if I go to the Father, greater works shall he do. So, greater in number. And that's what happened. Now, these infallible proofs that he talks about there in verse 3, they're resurrection appearances. And for 40 days, we're told that he appeared to the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom. He talked with them. He walked with them. He appeared. How would you, how would you like it if you were eating dinner and Jesus appeared at the, at the table? 
oh, I better get up to another place setting, you know. That's okay, I'll take care of it. And he makes the place setting appear or something, I don't know. But he just appeared and disappeared all, you know, at different times. And, and we don't know what he, what he said and did. It would be great to have a tape recording of that and be able to hear what he taught about the kingdom. Can you imagine sitting down and listening to the resurrected Christ and having him teach about the kingdom? It's in our future. But they had it at this time, and it was a, a beyond a blessing, and it was an infallible proof, and they saw him raised from the dead, and this is what their, that their unswerving testimony would be all the way to the end, that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. Someone has said that some people die for a lie, but no one dies for something they know to be a lie. And they knew whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. They knew it. Because either he, they saw him or they didn't see him. If they did see him, then that means that they can lay their lives down and be confident he'll take care of their, their you know, new bodies and be in heaven. But if he didn't rise from the dead, why would they go out and say that he did and, and get punished and beaten and, and, and tortured and killed? Nobody dies for something they know to be a lie. And they continuously, purposely, and effectively lived their lives for Christ, testifying to the resurrection until they were put to death, except John, although they tried. But what Jesus is teaching them as he's appearing to them and disappearing and appearing and disappearing, he's doing two things at least. He's showing them that no matter where they go, he's there. No matter where they find themselves, he's right there with them. And also what he's doing is he's kind of weaning them off of his physical presence with them because there'll come a time where they won't see him anymore. So here they, they, they were with him constantly, physically, for years, and then now there's going to come a point in time where they don't see him at all. So he graciously weans them off of that and slowly you know, eases them into not seeing him at all. He's very gracious and does all things well. Now in verses 4 and 5, notice he tells them to not leave Jerusalem but to wait for the promise. Verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he tells them to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. When did, when did they hear it from him? Well, they, did, he, they, he, they heard that from him previously. Let's look, let's turn, keep your finger in Acts, and let's turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, just flip back to the left a little bit. And let's see where Jesus told him that. John chapter 14. Let's begin in verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So here Jesus told them he would give them another helper. Now the word another in the Greek means another of the same kind. So Jesus is not saying I'll send you another, a different kind of helper. He's saying I'll send you as the same kind of helper that I've been. And helper in the original language means one who comes alongside to help. So he's saying, the one, the one that I'm going to send you, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan, as orphans. I will come to you, and I will send a helper that will come alongside to help, 
of the same kind. So just like me. You don't have to worry that I'm going to give you someone that's not like me. I'm going to give you someone that's just like me. So he promises this this, uh, sending of the Holy Spirit to them. And he said, I will not leave you. I I will come to you. Now turn over a page or so to John 16. John 16. And let's look at verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Notice these three little words often overlooked in verse 7, to your advantage. Right there in verse 7, to your advantage. Jesus didn't say it would be just as good if he went away. That would have been wonderful to the disciples. They would have been thrilled just to hear, it'll be just the same if I go away. That would have been music to their ears. But he he did something even better. He said, it is to your advantage that I go away. How many of us today believe that we're better off than the disciples were when they were physically with Jesus during his public ministry? Probably a lot of us. But we're not. But they're not. They weren't better off. We're better off. We're just like they were after he rose from the dead and, and, and they had the Holy Spirit just like we have the Holy Spirit. We have the advantage. So we're not, we're not less than, than what they were or in the sense of being able to be used by God and be comfort, comforted by God. Now keep your finger there and turn back to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 again. Keep your finger there though in, in John. Now notice in verse 6, the disciples question about Jesus' restoration of Israel. Verse 6 in Acts chapter 1. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They couldn't help themselves. Because all this time, all growing up, as they heard the scriptures and they saw messianic prophecies in the scriptures, as they heard them read, all they could, they could only think about it was a political savior because Rome was such a was such a strong yoke on them the tyranny of Rome all growing up they heard this and now they were thinking it's right at the door he's going to set up his kingdom and and of course they they would think that because the 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 abuse that Rome uh, meted out to them was horrible They just cried out to God to deliver them from this tyranny. So they were thinking this was the time that it was going to happen. Now notice in verse 7, we see Jesus telling them it's not for them to know. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Jesus knows there's a perfect timing to all this. and he, He wants to save untold millions and millions of people until the fullness of the gospel is complete. See, God's heart has always been for the whole world. And as hard as what the Jews were going through with the tyranny of Rome, they still were focused on themselves. But God had a heart to reach the whole entire world. He had a greater plan. But notice he doesn't refute the idea of the kingdom being restored to Israel. There are those that teach that the church today is spiritual Israel and God is through with Israel. And I would point them to Romans chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, because the Apostle Paul makes that very clear. God is not done with Israel. So he doesn't, he, he had the perfect chance to refute that and say, wait a minute, no, no, the church is going to become Israel and, and God's through. He doesn't do that. He says, 
It's not for you to know the time. Basically, it's none of your business. You ever had God tell you that? It's none of your business? I hate when he does that at first, but then I'm thankful when I see the fruit of it. But in verse 8, he redirects them now. He ignores their whole question uh, in terms of giving them the real answer to it, except it's not for you to know. And he redirects them back to the promise about which he previously spoke. In verse 8, he said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus wants them to wait and receive what they really need. They thought what they really needed was to be part of a ruling government of Israel that got them out of the bondage of Rome. But, but God knew what, his, what their real need was to be witnesses to him, but they needed power. And that power was for what? What, did that, what was the power for? To call fire down from heaven? To, for self-promotion? No, to be witnesses to him. We love power, don't we? I think a lot of men really like power. Power tools and powerful cars and powerful stereos. We love power, generally speaking. But usually we like power because, because it serves us somehow. How, how often have you prayed, God, make me powerful to be other-centered? And to be concerned about other people. Usually we're not asking power for that. But this is what this power is for. God empowers me for that which is noble, not selfish. For, for participating in what he wants to do. To help others. To minister to others. To serve others. He empowers me for that. Not to serve myself. We don't need any power to do that. We, we do that well enough. We don't need much power to do that. But notice he says, you shall be witnesses. This is important because it's not something that you merely do but rather something you are. God changes you and you become a different person, empowered to reach other people. So it's not just something that we go, go do. You know, we go witnessing. I remember one time in Modesto over 15 years ago, I went uh, sharing my faith with some friends and we were at this, uh, outside of this nightclub and we were sharing, sharing our faith with people and people were not too happy to hear about what we had to say, as you can imagine. And a police officer came and, and pulled up and he said, what are you doing? And he said, we're witnessing. And he goes, witnessing what? You know, he was, he was, really, he was really concerned about what we were witnessing. Of course, I was using vernacular that, that he couldn't understand. But witnessing is something that you do. We use that term. We share our faith. But God is more concerned about us being a witness and living our lives as a good representation of the Lord than actually engaging in a practice, which does come in its time, but it's an overflow of who I am. And notice the scope of their witness. It was to be in Jerusalem and in all Judea, it says right there, and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's actually the outline for the book of Acts. Witness to Jerusalem and Judea occurs in chapters 1 through 7. The witness to Samaria in chapters 8 through 12. And the witness to the uttermost in chapter 13 up to the present. It doesn't end. We're probably chapter 2347 by now. Because the book of Acts does not end. And like I said earlier, God has a heart for the whole world. Acts shows how he began to do this through the disciples and it continues to this day. Now notice in verse 8, he tells them when they get this power. He said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There are three different potential relationships one can have with the Holy Spirit as you study the scriptures. And these are described in scripture by three prepositions. With, in, and upon. Before we come to know the Lord, the Holy Spirit is with us. It's, the word with is para in the Greek. It it's kind of means alongside. Uh, the word parable 
it means to cast alongside. So you, you cast alongside a truth, a story that a person can be familiar with, so he can link the familiar with the unfamiliar that you're trying to teach them. That's where the word parable comes from, to cast alongside. But before we come to know the Lord, the Holy Spirit is with us. Flip back to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Hopefully you kept your place there. And look at verse 17. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus tells the disciples, the Holy Spirit's with them, but he will be in you. Before you come to know the Lord, the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin. We're actually, we're told in verse 9, there in John 14, that he's to come to convict the world of, of righteousness. And he also compels people to make Jesus their Lord and Savior. And the Holy Spirit testifies to our hearts that we're in need of a Savior and convicts us of sin. But he says at the end of verse 17, and will be in you. Okay, and will be in you. So there's our second preposition. The first there's the, world, the, the word with, and now our second one, the word in. Now in Greek, it's the word, if you were to transliterate it, it would be en. It would be en. That's their word for, for in. Okay, so you have with, before we come to know the Lord, and then in, when, when we come to know the Lord. Well, when did this happen for the disciples? I'm glad you asked. Thank you. Let's turn to Luke, uh, excuse me, to John chapter 20. And we'll see when the disciples receive the Holy Spirit. John chapter 20. Start in verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So this is when the disciples received the Holy Spirit. This is when they were regenerated. That's the, the theological term for when our spirit is dead, when we're born that way, and then when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, then our spirit becomes alive by the Holy Spirit. That's called regeneration. That's what happened there with the disciples. But they had to wait until Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. He does this right after he raises from the dead. So they couldn't do this before. He had to pay the price for their sin and he had to subsequently uh, be raised from the dead before he could do this. So this is, this is, when, they, this is when the in happened. Because he said, like we read, he is with you and soon he will be in you. This is when it happened. Now let's go back to Acts chapter 1. And now in verse 8, we have the third preposition which describes our potential relationship with the Holy Spirit, the word upon. And in the Greek, it's epi. And that's, the, that's the Greek word, upon. Let's, let's read verse 8 again. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So now the preposition changes to upon. Jesus is speaking of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've heard this before. John the Baptist told us about this in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, when he said, I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is having the Holy Spirit come upon you 
And you're empowered to be a witness to Jesus. To Jesus. It's like when, when you witness an accident. You, I was a witness to the accident. So when we're empowered to be a witness to Jesus, we're, we're empowered to be a witness to Jesus, that he rose from the dead, he's changed our lives, he is the truth, he is the way, and God gives us that power to do it. So that's what the empowering is for. Now this upon experience came for the disciples in Acts chapter 2. Look with me there in verse 3. Acts 2 verse 3. It's important to see where all these things are, especially to be a good Berean and test everything by the scriptures. Verse 3. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to, t- to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them under it. So, so the, the tongues of fire sat upon, upon each one of them. Now if you'll turn with me also to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And this is when Philip went to Samaria. And there was a Samaritan revival. There. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Okay, so they're water baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon, there's our word upon again, none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, after Philip preached in Samaria here, and many were saved, even baptized, but, he hadn't, but they hadn't had the upon experience. They hadn't been empowered. But this can also happen at conversion, too. Turn with me a couple chapters over to, to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Peter here is visiting a Gentile named Cornelius. And we're told in verse 44, this is while Peter is preaching the gospel to him, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon, there's the word upon again, all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Now later, Peter gives a a kind of an account of what just happened to the leaders in Jerusalem because they were kind of getting concerned because what? The the Gentiles, you know, and he's having to kind of explain himself. And in chapter 11, verse 15, Peter, as he's recounting what happened with Cornelius, he said, and as, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. So he's talking about Acts chapter 2. So here, Cornelius and his whole house were there, and Peter is preaching. He's telling them about the gospel. You can read it uh, later. But as he's speaking, God interrupts his sermon, which is quite discouraging, I'm sure, at times. Uh, but God interrupts his sermon, and, and they're, they're saved, they're regenerated, they're, they have the Holy Spirit in them, but also at the same time, God comes upon them and baptizes them with the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't always happen... Uh, Subsequent to salvation, it can happen at the same time salvation. 
That actually happened to me. I, I, I was in a church, 1990, and I was there. I was there because a girl invited me there. It wasn't my wife Sandy, um, but she invited me there. I went there. It was because of hormones, and I, you know, wanted to hang out. And she said, "Come to church," and she fought me and fought me. Finally, I said, "Okay," and, and I went there. And and and. You know, no one was giving an invitation or an altar call or anything like that. But I, I just, I had already had the gospel preached to me before by my sisters. And so I, I just realized at that moment that I was so pathetically lost and without hope. And I just said, Lord, I receive you as my Savior. And I just, Lord, I want all you have to offer. And I surrendered my life. And right then, I literally felt like I was plugged into a light socket. I felt just power going through my body. And, and, I, and I started speaking in tongues. And I didn't know what that was. I never heard that before. I never, ever heard that before in my life. But it happened, and I was thinking, These visitors, I'm a visitor here, and you're going to think I'm crazy. I mean, it wasn't loud. I wasn't screaming it out. It was just kind of under my breath, but I wanted to yell it out. Um, and I told this girl afterwards, and she was, wow, I can't believe that happened to you. But, but I wasn't asking for it, and it happened. And ever since that time, the, the Lord's empowered me to be a witness. It doesn't mean I haven't been refilled. We need, we need refills. I've been for refills before they did it with soda. But uh, uh, we, we need to be refilled. So, Scripture is clear. We have, we have this upon experience. We can have that if, we're, if we haven't already. It doesn't mean necessarily that you'll speak in tongues. You may, you may not. Calvary Chapel is not a Pentecostal movement. We love our Pentecostal brothers, and we acknowledge the Lord, obviously, using their lives. Uh, but we believe that speaking in tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's not necessarily something that every believer can do if, as, an, as an initial evidence of being baptized with the Spirit. It's one of the evidences, but it's not the evidence. And that would, that would separate us from, from the Pentecostal side of the body of Christ, who we, like I said, dearly love. But we do believe that all the gifts of the Spirit are for today, but they need to be done decently and in order and biblically. And so uh, we don't have a biblical support for saying that they've ceased. Uh, we don't believe and so we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. So, but it's important to remember that Jesus didn't offer this baptism with the Spirit to, to he didn't say it's to, to speak in tongues or to hang from chandeliers or be weird and have big signs out on the road saying, you know, God hates you and repent and all the things that sometimes we can think is associated with, with people who are into the Holy Spirit. He did it so that we could, be a, we could be, have that power to be a witness to him. That's, that's the evidence of being baptized with the Spirit, is the, to receive the power to be a witness to Him. So if you're here today and you have never been baptized with the Holy Spirit, I want you to know it's available to you. That all you have to do is ask. Luke t- told us uh, in his Gospel, in Luke 1, um, when I say Luke 1, Acts is Luke 2, so I'm referring to the first, the first um, book by Luke in, in chapter 11, where that was a lot of... A lot of energy for not much return on that one. But uh, in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13, Jesus said, If a son asks for bread from, from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we need to ask. Peter said that it's a gift. You don't earn a gift, you ask. You ask for a gift. And so it's a matter of us recognizing maybe, maybe we don't have the power in our lives that, that we 
sense that we should. Maybe we are living a defeated life. Maybe you need to be baptized with the Spirit and have the Spirit come upon you. And it's, it's definitely something that's made a huge difference in my life as I came to know the Lord and was baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, and we don't know what gifts the Lord wants to give us. And he says that he distributes them according to his own will. And so it's not up to us. We don't seek the gift. We seek the giver of the gift. But God knows that we need this power. He, he knows that we cannot live the Christian life in the power of our own strength. There's no way it can happen. Only frustration will occur when I try to live the Christian life in the power of my own strength. So God wants us to give us wants to give us this power if we ask him. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, you've never given your life to the Lord, I want to encourage you that that you today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. And God created you to have a personal relationship with him. But the problem is God's assessment of you is that you're a sinner. And God's definition of a sinner is someone that's been less than perfect which we all fall into that category of being less than perfect. But Jesus didn't leave us in that condition. He came and he died on the cross and he paid the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. So if we trust in his finished work upon the cross and his death and his burial, his resurrection, then as I surrender my life to him, he comes into my life and and we're born again by the Holy Spirit. And born again just simply means a spiritual birth. And by doing that today does not mean that you're joining this church it's between you and God, this, this, you surrendering your life to him. But I do want to give that opportunity uh, for you. If you want to come forward after the service and talk to myself or Paul or Jeff or Dave and say, I'd, I'd like to be born again. I, I, I believe in God. I'm religious. I do good things. But I haven't had that spiritual birth. Because believing in God and being a good person and being religious does not get you into heaven, according to the scriptures. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, if any man, um, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. He told that to Nicodemus. So I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Don't leave this place without entering into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's free for the asking. Then you can enter into this life of power, being empowered to be a witness to Jesus and what he's done in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that you do not leave us as orphans. We thank you, Lord, that it was to our advantage that you went away to the Father. Thank you, Lord, that, that you want to continue to work in our lives to make us into the witnesses that you want us to be. We want to be good witnesses for you, Lord. We want to be good witnesses. And I pray, Lord, for each one here that has never been baptized with the Holy Spirit. I pray that even right now as I'm praying, you'd baptize them with your, your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that they would ask for that. And I pray, Lord, that that uh, you would pour out your spirit upon this group here, Lord, in a powerful, powerful way. And all of us, Lord, that have been baptized, we pray that right now you freshly you refill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you for the privilege of being able to be your witnesses, that you even desire us to be your witnesses, Lord. What a privilege and a blessing that is, Lord. We thank you for how you worked in our midst this morning. We pray, Lord, that you'd continue to use these words for your purposes and for your glory in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.